Hi everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and this is episode 18. On today's episode, we're going to talk about empire. We're going to talk about how it shaped modern Britain. We're going to talk about its dark, dark past. And we're going to talk about it with Satnam Sangera, the author of Empire Land. It's a very insightful book. I'm holding the book in my hand right now. It's like taking the red pill and seeing how deep the rabbit hole goes. It's going to be a really, really cool episode and I hope you enjoy it. Also, if you're enjoying the Brown History Podcast and you're enjoying the Brown History Instagram page and you want to help out, visit patreon.com slash brownhistory or visit brownhistorypodcast.com. Your help, your contribution goes a long, long way. Trust me on that. Anyways, let's get this episode started. I hope you enjoy it and let's let's go. Let's start. You want to get started? Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to get started. Yeah? Yeah. Um, okay, so I really appreciate your book. There's so much to learn, so much to digest, so much to unpack. The timing of it is perfect, too, because there are statues falling. Uh, there's protests around the world. How did you get the idea of the book? Yeah, it's completely accidentally timely. I'm just going to change the uh, audio, sorry, so I can hear myself better. Uh, accidentally timely. To mm-hmm. be honest, when I began it, it was a really esoteric subject. And people kept on asking me what the hell I was doing. And they, they didn't, couldn't get their heads around it. Yeah. But I, it began when I made a documentary about Jallianwalabagh, which is a famous ma- massacre that happened in India in 1919. I made it for a British broadcaster called Channel 4. And it struck me when I was researching it, A, I didn't, wasn't taught about it at school and I knew nothing. Secondly, the way the Sikhs were you know, treated by the British in India in that time echoed the way... They were treated in post-war Britain. Like, it's a combination of being indulged and being subjugated. The Sikhs were very much involved in empire. You know, they took the side of the British at the 1857 mutiny. They fought in huge numbers in both world wars. And then they took advantage of traveling in empire. I mean, they relocated in huge numbers to Africa, in huge numbers to Britain, and also, of course, Canada, where yeah. my sister lives in Vancouver. Our story is tied up in empire, and it's weird that I just didn't know about it. And you're Sikh? I am Sikh, yes. You grew up in London. Uh, no, you grew up somewhere in the UK. Where yeah. exactly? Wolverhampton? That's, that's quite funny because, yeah, you have no idea where Wolverhampton is. You, no. There's no reason why you should know. It's kind of like the D- Detroit of the UK. It's really? very, in- very industrial it's where the industrial revolution began, you know, so it's loads of factories, white people didn't want to work with them after the war. So loads of immigrants came over from India to do those jobs. Right. I grew up there, then I moved to London. And what were you, what were you taught? What was your, what, what was school like, uh, you know, when it came to history, what was your education like? This is the thing, I supposedly had a really great education. I went to a, a private school, I got a scholarship at one of our best schools. Then I went to Cambridge University, did English. But you know what? Learned nothing about empire. It was only my last term at university where I was allowed to read a brown author. And even like we have a lot of Remembrance Day services in the UK. I don't know if you do in Canada. You probably do. Yeah, we do. World we War do. One, World War Two. Yes. So I've probably sat through 50 in my life. At no point did anyone say, oh, by the way, you guys were there too. You know, we were a diverse student body, racially diverse. No one ever said, you know, you know what, the Sikhs fought and, and people from the Caribbean and people from Africa. No one ever mentioned it. We've got this incredible amnesia in this country where we just yes. don't talk about it. From my understanding, people, I'm, I mean, white people love the empire and there's kind of a pride to it. And I think like Winston Churchill is like the third most respected 
I saw a list of, you know, British that were respected. And I think Winston Churchill came third. And there's a lot of kind of different perspectives on him. And I'm assuming you probably pissed off a lot of people writing this book. <laughs> yeah, we've got this idea, which is intensifying in Britain. Yeah. To be proud of being British, you need to be proud of the history. It's inane because it's four to 500 years of history. How can you be proud of something that is that long and that complicated? It's not like a film you review on Netflix. You know what I mean? It's <sighs> really complicated. It was really bad. It was really good. It was a million things. It covered a quarter of the planet. But there is this basic view, and it's very in getting increasingly popular. It's popular with our government that you need to be proud of history. You need to protect it. You need to defend the history against people who want to tear down statues and against people like me who point out that some massacres and racism happened. Yeah. So it's a very poisonous environment in which to write about this subject. But you, you kind of use the word we, you know, be, you know, because you really do kind of emphasize that you're also British. So how do you respond to people who are also British, but white, and then they tell you, to be to appreciate what you have because it's like as if like there's a favor that you owe empire because yes. you are empire which is ironic because empire it's ironic because empire is the reason why you're there yeah so yeah this is the point i make in my book it's called the i call it the gratitude the issue. gratitude issue yeah and, and i think immigrants get this around the world you get it in america as well you had trump definitely trump, trump saying this is like if a brown person observes that the history of the country wasn't always great, you get told to get back to where you came from. Be grateful because you could be still in India or in Pakistan having a terrible life. And it's racist because I wasn't born in India. You know, I'm British. And my white colleagues on The Times don't get told that. They don't get told to be grateful every time they say anything critical about Britain. And so it also highlights the amnesia we have in Britain in that people are brown, second generation immigrants, which is a phrase I hate, you know, aren't really seen as being British. But you have the phrase second generation immigrant in Canada. Yeah. It's a, it makes no sense as a term. I mean, I guess you're born in Canada. No, I wasn't. Oh, you weren't. So in which case you are an immigrant. But if you had children, in what way would your children be immigrants? What about, okay, so there are people who love empire, but there's also an older generation of South Asians who had a respect for empire which was kind of weird what do you call what do you, what do you think about them and why do they have a certain level of kind of reverence for empire i guess i can only talk about the punjabi sikhs and yeah they my grandfather was kind of nostalgic about empire and that's because i guess the sikhs weren't having a great time especially in the 1980s when they were being you know killed in large yeah. numbers and so and so there, there is and also there's nostalgia for empire in hong kong at the moment because of the Chinese government. There's a real movement to bring the British back. So, and also there's a nostalgia among Sikhs for the Sikh empire. So it's not like, it's not a problem that just afflicts the British. It afflicts, it afflicts the Belgians, the Dutch. The Dutch had a huge empire and they're also very nostalgic about it. So it's an international issue, I'd say. But the British, the surveys show, we have it. We have it the worst. <laughs> if, I, if I was a tourist in London, I would visit British museums. I'd visit Buckingham Palace. It's ironic that there is so much of empire that's kind of, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know where I'm going with this, but okay, well, let's break it down. You have the museum, right? 
how do you yes. feel about how do you feel about museums? And there's a chapter that I was really like it was so fascinating to read, and it was on Tibet. And I was wondering for the re- for the people who are listening, can you explain about the the use of Tibet? I mean, there was a lot of bad things Empire did, but you really focused on Tibet, and I wanted to know why you focused on that and what it meant. Yeah, have you been to Britain by the way, London? And when I was like six or something. I'll come back. I'll I'll give you a tour of the museums. The thing you'll remember about the museums in Britain is that they grew up as empire grew. The East India Company, which invaded India, had a museum in its own offices. And when they invaded countries occasionally, they actually took British museum officials with them to buy stuff up. And I, the two examples I use are the 1903 Tibet expedition and the 1868 Ethiopian invasion. And the Tibet story is just really fascinating because there was no reason to invade Tibet. They invaded it because they found it interesting because it was the equivalent of North Korea now. No white person had ever gone to Tibet. And the British were just accumulating knowledge from all their invasions. And they wanted to fill that gap. So this guy called Young Husband basically found an excuse to invade Tibet, killed thousands of innocent Tibetans who had no weapons with machine guns. Wow. And then looted it all and a lot of that stuff is still in the british museum a lot of it still comes up for sale and i think there's a lack of honesty in our national debate about museums and that we don't admit that actually we just invaded places purely to steal stuff you know and also the other thing we never acknowledge is that it was condemned at the time you know what happened in tibet caused outrage what happened in ethiopia and the stuff that was stolen from Ethiopia is now at the heart of the Victoria and Albert Museum, right? What happened then? The Prime Minister at the time, Gladstone, said it was outrageous. He was like, I hope we can return the stuff because it's disgusting. And yet, if someone like me or you now says, hey, we should probably return these things, we get accused of being woke or, you know, overly left wing. But it was unpopular at the time. And my other point about museums is, there's a very common argument in Britain that, oh my God, if we started returning stuff, they'd be empty, these museums. Yeah. We only have, the British Museum has 1% of its collection on display. Even if we give away 5%, that still leaves a lot of things, you know? So I think we should have a more honest repatriation process. Do, do the museums tell you how they got the artifacts when you go in there? If you're a little kid walking to the museum, does it tell you like we got, we stole this or do they hide that narrative? You know what? There's such outrage at the moment. And your generation, they feel the way about museums that my generation felt about zoos. <sighs> and so finally, the British Museum and the VNA, they're finally engaging. They're finally changing the way they label stuff. But it's a very low process. And there's actually a law which stops them returning things. They're not allowed to. Okay. Um, there's a quote at the beginning by Salman Rushdie. Um, let me read it. Yeah, it's it's in the dialect of the character. You can translate. Right, I don't know if I'm going to do that, but it's pretty, <laughs> I'm going to say it in you know my my way. The trouble with the Englishmen is that their history happened overseas, so they don't know what it means. I never really saw. I never really realized that. But a lot of the stuff that happened was kind of this distant thing that happened far away. Whereas if you look at other empires, like let's say Germany. The stuff that they did, all the dark history that they have is they, they saw it, you know, it was there. So I wanted to know what it means for modern Britain for the fact that everything happened far away. Yeah, and this is, I think that's the central reason why we, we have such amnesia about empire, you know. 
it's not like France where they were invaded in World War II and then they had to confront the way they collaborated with the Nazis. And it, you know, it was a big process. Even when empire was at its peak, there's been mm -hmm. loads of research that's shown that people in Britain had very little sense of it. You know, it was always far away. And another reason why I think we were so forgetful about empire is that it's such a complicated story. You know, it's four to 500 years. Every area was governed differently. There were, like East India Company, such a strange organization to get your head around. It's much easier to think of World War II, which had a clear beginning, clear end. We had clear morality. We were, you know, killing off, beating the yeah. evil racist Germans. Yeah. It's much easier to think of yourself as that than this messy, weird, complicated history. Also where the, a lot of the documentation was destroyed on purpose. Or was it? Yeah, deliberately. Oh. After, yeah, in the late 20th century, there's lots of evidence that the, the documentation was destroyed. The um, other reason, it's also a very painful history. Yeah. You know, it's really painful to think about the massacres, the genocides, whereas World War I and World War II, there's a certain amount of pain, but it's not as painful. Yeah, but they, it's not like they... It's not. It's not like they don't look at the past. They look at the past, but they look at the they look at the highlights, the good stuff, the you know, winning the war, and I guess probably one of the most popular arguments is, but what about the railways? How do you feel about the railways? Yeah, I've written a whole thing about the railways in the book, and yeah. it's really weird. one of the few ways Empire ever comes onto British TV is. <laughs> through documentaries about the Indian railways. And it's always a white guy who's about 60 talking to camera about how the British gave the Indians the gift of the railways. And of course, that's not what happened. The, the British built the railways for their own purposes. They were built for military reasons, to get the resources out of the country. They were built to actually impoverished and held back the Indian technology. But you keep on getting this myth. And about a year ago, I tried to pitch a TV documentary about the real story about the Indian railways because there's so many of them saying the opposite. And the commission, the producer involved said, look, Satnam, British people don't want their prejudices challenged. They enjoy it. They like to sit down on 6.30 on a Monday evening and to think about what they've done for the Indians, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's that's a major problem we've got in talking about this stuff. A lot, A lot of people in British society are have roots connected to empire and, and benefited from it. it. It seems like every white British historian has a relative that was in, in empire and that did, could have done some things that could have benefited them. How do you, you know, is that one reason why nobody wants to talk about it is because everyone's connected to it also. And they and the money that came from it, the real estate, the properties, the artifacts, even like old treasures in the attic have like a connection to, a colonized country, a nation. So must be awkward to be in, in, um, in circles where the man's father or grandfather was, had a hand in it. Yeah. It's awkward. And also people take offense. They take it personally. They're like, well, I didn't do it. My ancestors did. I am. Are you saying I'm a racist? So it gets very personal very quickly. The other issue is, and this is why your Instagram account is so good. The name of it, especially when you're talking about empire, you're basically talking about race. You're talking about white people conquering brown people. Yes. So this debate we have about empire in this country is vicious because it's basically a, a conversation about racism. And the British, because they abolished slavery, 
because they beat the evil racist Germans, cannot handle the accusation that they were ever racist. But the problem is they were. Not only that, they created lots of modern notions of racism in the 19th century. They are, I mean, they basically wrote handbooks explaining why the Sikhs were different from the Gurkhas and why the black people weren't, you know, wouldn't work unless they were compelled and had all these massive racial generalizations. But that's a very hard thing for British people to face up to. Let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about uh, martial race. Mm. How, how did that work back then? And how did they kind of categorize? Yeah, this is the thing that most blew my mind. And I think it's the thing that persuaded me to write the book. It was because we Sikhs see ourselves as the martial race. You know, we, we talk about ourselves and that, not that you could guess it from my physique, but it's one of our self-identifying features. But it was amazing to read about how British imperialists had largely created that idea, you know, because we, we took the side of the British after mutiny. Yes. So the British suddenly thought, you know what, we can trust some of them, but not all of them. So they started talking us up. They talked us up. There's a martial race, wrote handbooks explaining why we had the right type of nose, you know, to be warlike and why other races, ethnic groups, such as the Bengalis, weren't to be trusted, why they couldn't fight. They came up with these really insane ideas. And obviously the idea of Sikhs as being martial goes back to our own history, partly. But it has been largely propelled around the world by the British. So much so, it's the way we see ourselves. Now, even the way we see ourselves as a community, it's because of the bloody British Empire. And I didn't know that. And I found that shocking that I'd written two books about the Sikh community, and I didn't know that. And I was like, what the hell? I really need to learn about this stuff. Wow. Let's say you're the principal of a school. Like, you get to decide the school circulum. How would you teach history without dividing or, or I, I guess not making certain people upset and kind of making kind of a, a way to kind of unite people together in this dirty past. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's been the problem. It doesn't get taught much because it's so divisive and you've got left wing and right wing parties, yes. both of whom are polarized. Your right wingers want to teach the positive things. The left wingers want to, you know, teach shame and so on. But I think you can teach it, you know, first of all, we need to get rid of the balance sheet idea of history. The idea you can balance the good against the bad and then come to some conclusion about whether empire was good or bad. That's just illiterate. Leave it. Do, do what I do in my book, which is talk about the legacies. Because those are real things now. And those things you can weigh up. You talk about, you know, there's a perfectly, you know, inoffensive herit- um, legacy of empire is the fact that British people can be seen everywhere around the world. We travel more than any nation on earth. And that goes back to empire. That's not particularly political. Um, the reason we're a multicultural society in Britain now, the reason I'm here is because some white guy invaded India in the 18th century, right? Right. That, that could be taught quite simply. But also there's p- specific events like the mutiny, um, the Morant Bay Rebellion of 1865, where a bunch of Jamaicans were killed, where it was a devi- divisive issue at the time. It's, it'd be very easy to teach. You could teach what one group of people said and what the other group of people said. It's not hard to engage students in that kind of debate, but I can also see how it could make people very angry in a classroom. Yeah. And Empire has a very long, very, very, very long history, a history that spans around the world. And I mean, they did, they did, they did things to different people and different groups of people. So... 
that's a really big subject to teach. That's like yeah, it's huge. It's, it is yeah. huge. But you could teach the beginnings of it. Like it wasn't particularly, you know, it's not particularly controversial about how empire began, you know, in North America or in Ulster or in India and so on. I think you can. You could teach anything. I mean, people who say you oh, are too big to teach. I mean, that's kind of inter- anti-intellectual. You know what I mean? That's the whole point of education. True. True. I mean, and I, I feel like people are doing it anyway. And you're an example of that. I feel that young people are really engaged in this history, you know, and they really care. And they're getting their information from other, other sources like Instagram accounts and so on, because their official curriculum doesn't give it to them. So people are educating themselves anyway. Yeah, but at the same time, I'm kind of dividing people because I'm only teaching South Asians. And that separates, I guess, the, the non-South Asians from this, you know? So the goal would be so that I could teach that, that anybody, that the goal would be to teach everybody together and engage with each other. But I am part of that dividing factor, right? Well, you can't do everything. I mean, that's that one of my missions with my book in that people in this country talk about slavery all the time and they don't connect it to empire. And there's an empire conversation True. Which is separate, True. but they're the same thing. I mean, slavery was part of empire, and I think you can integrate them. And then you had, when slavery ended, you had loads of indentured laborers from yeah. India and, the, and Asia going over to fill the gaps. You know, it, you, people disconnect the stories too often, and they're the same thing. So when I I see brown history, I see that as black history too. Um, NHS. A lot of people of color comprise the NHS medical staff. Why? Yeah. What does that have to do with imperialism? Yeah, I mean, 44% of the 44%, medical staff yeah. are black or Asian. That's incredible, isn't it? And know. there's parts of Wales where something like a quarter of all the doctors are South Asian, so Pakistani or Indian. And that's basically because after World War II, there was a labor shortage. And, you know, politicians, including Enoch Powell, who's a massive racist, actually, but he, he was a health minister. They encouraged, you know, people to come and build this new national health system. And so there's always been this tradition of people coming from the Caribbean and India to work in the NHS. But now they've been dying. I mean, black and Asian people have been dying at a massively disproportionate rate. Yeah. So 95% of all the doctors who have died from COVID in the UK were black, black or Asian. Isn't that amazing? 95%. Mm. So that's why people are beginning to ask, like, you know, can this change the debate about immigration? Because will we finally be grateful for these people who not only built the NHS, but are now dying for us, you know? So that's what I'm trying to write about in my journalism. It's like, you know what? Empire saved us, you know, these people. We've got to talk about it. We've got to talk about the history. I think your last book was about your romantic life. All right. Oh, yeah, my first one, sorry, yeah. The Boy with the Top Knot. And then I wrote one called Marriage How, Material. How's the empire affecting your love life now? <laughs> COVID is affecting my love life. <laughs> Does anyone have a love life? And if you live uh, with your partner, you hate them. So um, no, no, it's not affecting my love life. But I do see empire everywhere. I mean... Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, it's everywhere now for you. For yeah, yeah. I've been thinking about the farmers' protests, actually. And I've been getting some crap from Sikh saying, why don't you use your platform to write about farmers protests? And yeah, let's actually, talk about I, that. I do. And I have to, I tweet about it and Instagram me about it a lot, but I'm not in India. And to write about it on the times, you need to be on, be on the ground. If I, if I could travel, I would go and write about it. But 
And they keep people keep on saying, you know, why are you going on about empire? That's got nothing to do with the farmers' protest. I was like, you know what? There is a connection because number one, why are the Indian police so vicious? It's why? because the colonial police were so vicious. They're continuing in that tradition, you know. Secondly, why do people in Canada and in Britain understand Indian public politics so poorly? And that's because India is portrayed in just this ludicrous nostalgic way in our films and in our tv which stops people from understanding that modi is basically a neo-fascist indian nationalist you know because yeah. they look at they look back at india as this kind of rosy time when you know everything was nice and the british were giving the indians the railways and that affects the way people see indian politics they see india as the largest democracy in the world they don't see it as a democracy that's falling apart. Controversial, I realize, saying that. Well, that's okay. <laughs> I mean, sometimes people say, why do you mention genocide in relation to British Empire? Yeah. But actually, there was a genocide. Tasmania, 4,000 4, to 8,000 Tasmanian Aborigines were wiped out by settlers. Wiped out to such a degree that what happened was used as the interna- international definition of genocide in international law. So there was a, literally a genocide in British Empire because they used it as the definition. But people argue about what happened to the Sikhs, whether it was an attempted genocide or not. I don't know enough about it, and I need to I need to read more. Really, I think one other thing that history doesn't teach us in schools is how different races, different colonized countries come come together to help each other out to fight empire. And how sometimes there's a connection, for example, with the Irish, um, I forgot what it's called. I think it was something to do with March, March protest, May protest, May rebellion. I don't know, but it was connected to how, you know, people in in, uh, India saw that as an inspiration, the way the Irish were rebelling against. And then they also rebelled against the empire. But you never see these. You never see these relationships of two different people being oppressed by empire come kind of inspire each other and kind of take on empire in their own separate worlds. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point, man. I've had quite a few people, Irish people writing to me saying, you know, does your book cover Ireland? And it does. And the thing that blew my mind was the way the Sikhs were treated in in my hometown. Yeah. You know, how were they treated in your hometown, first of all? Basically, it was an echo of what happened in empire in that they were the subject of racial violence. You know, it's called packy bashing in the 60s yeah. and 70s, where white guys would go out, get drunk, and just beat up an Asian person. That was like a hobby, you know, a sport. Um, and you had racial violence in empire too. They were subject to racial generalizations. So there's something called the virginity tests. I don't know if you know about these, but... At the um, airport. At the airport. So Indian immigrants were came to the airport. And because of these colonial notions about what in, women were in, in India, they were tested for whether they were virgins or not, about whether they were sincere in getting married or not, which is a very colonial way of seeing women. And then there was employment discrimination. I mean, Sikhs weren't allowed in empire to even do the top jobs in the railways. You know, they were discriminated against and whites and browns were kept apart. Same thing happened in Britain, in post-war Britain, you know, brown people weren't allowed to do loads of jobs. Then there was housing discrimination in that in empire, white and brown people didn't live together. They didn't socialize together. The white people had their own clubs. Same thing happened in in post-war Britain. I mean, there were working men's clubs in my hometown 
which had a color bar until 1984. And even now, there's certain pubs you'll go to if you're a brown person and certain pubs you won't go get. And that goes straight back, I argue, to empire. And so there's all these things that continue to define our psychology as a country, which we don't really think about. Is that is that taught too? There's this empire history and then there's also kind of Britain at home history of how they treated people of color. Is that taught or Absolutely is that also not. forgotten too? Completely forgotten, man. I mean, I, it's taken me till the age of 44 to find this stuff out. And I did a I did politics to quite a high level at school. We never yeah. touched upon any of this. Wow. Do you guys get taught better in Canada? No, not like, no, not at all. Not, <laughs> not me. We get taught about Roman history for some reason, but not, <laughs> not that. I don't know why. And we get taught about slavery, but we see slavery, like you said, it's not an empire thing. It's kind of like it's on its own, this like moment, this isolated event that happened in history. It's not really connected to empire or or Britain or anything like that. So totally. Yeah. Same here. There's a view here that we abolished slavery. Slavery happened in America, not in the UK. And there were slaves in Britain. There's adverts from owners saying, can you help me find my slave? Hundreds of them you know, in the, in the UK. And yet there's a popular idea. We never had slavery, you know? And, and the story ends there. Slavery ends, period. Everybody lives happily ever after. But you don't have that indentured labor story right after that, you know, starts up. That's kind of just forgotten completely. Yeah, and the 20 million pounds compensation paid to the owners, which we only just, be, we only just ended paying off five years ago. So the owners of slaves are compensated. The owners of slaves are compensated by who? Britain, by the state. When they abolished slavery in Britain, they paid 20 million pounds in compensation to the slave owners, not the slaves. They got, didn't get a penny because they're like, oh, you're going to lose out because we've abolished slavery. It was such a large sum that we only as a, as a country stopped paying off the debt on it in 2015. Wow, that's insane. And yet no one, we only ever talk about how we abolished slavery. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about the 3 million Africans we transported across the Atlantic. Three million. And you'll have politicians saying, we're a great country, we abolish slavery. It's like, what the hell, man? <laughs> That's insane. Let's talk about Winston Churchill. How do you feel about him? All right, yes. Well, he's got his news today, actually. It's all kicking off about Churchill. I think the thing about Churchill is he was a great war leader. He's the number one popular man in Britain. I mean, he's the most famous Britain we have. Yeah. And everyone's very patriotic about him. And our prime minister, you know, wrote a, a biography of Churchill in his spare time. You know, that's how much he's loved. But he was also a massive imperialist. Yeah. He was responsible for famines that, where millions died, you know, during the 40s. And he had incredibly, you know, racist views about the different you, races. You also used him as an example of how there were Britons who were against certain actions by the empire, specifically the massacre, the Sikh massacre that happened. Absolutely, yeah. At Jalim Wallabarg in 1919, when I think about 900, about six to 900 Sikhs, sorry, Indians were killed, he described it as monstrous. Yeah. You know, so there were times where he criticized empire. I was surprised when, to see that when yeah, I read the book that he criticized empire. This is the number one of the main points I'm trying to make in um, Empire Land is that, look, at the time, Every aspect of empire was criticized. Everything. It wasn't like everyone was behind it. 
yeah. you know, Gladstone, one of our prime ministers, railed against it. Queen Victoria sometimes was like, you know what, can you treat them a bit better? There was a debate, but now anyone who criticizes empire or observes anything negative is like woke and you're not British enough and you should piss off back to where you came from. And it's insane because that didn't happen at the time. Monarchy. Um, how do you feel about the, you know, the monarchy, the queen, Meghan <laughs> Markle, Prince Harry? I don't from my perspective, I guess from when I see it, it kind of seems like they're, they're, they get a lot of credit for doing nothing. <laughs> That's I feel point. like you're just trying to get me killed by raising, raising all these I don't, issues. I don't think any British, <laughs> any white person listens to my uh, show. <laughs> well, I've got complicated feelings because my mom, and I think like a lot of Indian moms and Pakistani moms, yes. identify with the queen. And what we can remember is there was massive pro on, pro-monarchy sentiment during empire. During the riots that happened after Jalingwalabagh, the massacre, yeah. Some of the protesters protected the statue of Queen Victoria and they were like, look, we hate General Dyer who killed us and we hate Britain, but we want to protect the mother queen. That's she was so bizarrely, yeah. bizarrely popular. And um, she continued, uh, Queen, Victor- queen Elizabeth II is, is very popular amongst Indians. And I don't object to the monarchy as long as Queen Elizabeth II never dies because she's done a job. She's not political. She, has a, she links us back to our history you know, I think she's great monarch and better than having an elected president. But when Prince Charles becomes king, that's a different conversation entirely. Because <laughs> we know his views and we know, you know, his deficiencies as a human being. You know, British history includes South Asians. And there are a lot of people from South Asia that came to Britain early on and kind of made a way, made a name for themselves and kind of moved up the ladder. And one example you use is Dean Muhammad. Can you elaborate on him? Because he was a very fascinating figure in your book. Yeah, yeah. And the re- one of the surprising things about the history was that, I mean, I was taught that basically Indians and Pakistanis were a recent invention in Britain, that we were this experiment. But yeah. actually... The- we go way back because in empire goes way back. There were the first Bengali, I think was born in 1616 in London, you know? Wow. And there were black, brown, yellow people in Britain going back hundreds of years. There were black people in Henry VIII's court, you know? That's but so- I pick up on Dean Muhammad, who was this amazing guy who came over with an Irish worker for the East India Company, lived in Ireland, had an interracial marriage like centuries before our parents were worrying about such things and <laughs> then came to London, set up the first Indian restaurant, introduced Indian cuisine to Britain. Then he started this kind of bath service, which is like a massage thing where in Brighton, where he called it shampooing, where you kind of massage people. And the word shampoo was popularized by him. And he was so popular in his time that the King became one of his customers. And also he was the first man, first Indian to write a book in English. It was a terrible book. It was the first. And I, I wish I'd been taught this stuff at school because, you know, I thought that we were just all recent kind of arrivals and they were just, just seeing, and we were sort of uninvited. Okay. You know? That's how Actually, you saw yourself they, uninvited. Yeah, basically that was the, that was the narrative of the politics I was fed. But Actually we go, the history goes way back. And then you had the Ayers, which were the women who helped British families on the boats look after their kids. Then there were the Lascars, who were the uh, brown people, the sailors that the British preferred to British sailors because they were more reliable, who then at the end of the journeys ended up living in places like Liverpool in really large numbers, you know? 
And there were race riots in the early 20th century. You know, there were so many people of color here. that Queen Elizabeth I was complaining about how there were too many black people in London, you know, in the 1600s. So I think we need to remember this history. The reason we're a multicultural society is because we had a multicultural empire. Right. That's a really important point. How do your parents feel about empire? You know what? They're just, they're a very working class family. Don't talk about it. They never told me anything. And actually, like many immigrants, they had the view that they might be sent back home at any point. I mean, in the 80s, you know, suitcases were always packed. No way. They held on to their Indian passports. I only persuaded them to get an Indian passport about 15 years ago. They're like, look, we might have to go back. And then, you know, then we've got no citizenship. And wow. so that was how negatively, you know, Indians were viewed, that they started seeing themselves as, as people who could be deported at any time. That's so much anxiety. Yeah, well, the thing is, we have deported. I don't know if you heard about the Windrush scandal here. Basically, these people, a bunch of uh, immigrants from the Caribbean came over in the 50s and 60s as citizens have been deported recently, you know, because they didn't have the documentation. So we're deporting actual citizens. That's how little we understand the history. How do you feel when you wrote a book against empire? I want to say against empire, but, you know, kind of really unravel it. Yeah, I guess it's, I'm pointing out really uncomfortable truth. Yes. How do your parents feel about that? I mean, that must have given them a lot of anxiety. <laughs> it gave me a lot of anxiety, actually. It was really, <laughs> uh, it's not fun, man, to sit and read about those massacres. No, no. And also to think, read about how the way Sikhs were murdered during the Anglo-Sikh wars for sport. I mean, these British officers shooting Sikhs for fun, you know, yeah. and making them run before they die and so on. And that's depressing because I see myself as a British person as, as much as an Asian person. No one wants to think of that stuff. But it's like finding, it's like having therapy. It's not comfortable, but it helps you recognize patterns of behavior so that you don't repeat the same patterns. And I realized the way that I felt that my lack of knowledge is typical. And so it's weird that the book has already done so well and that a lot of people felt like me. They just don't know about it. I mean, I would, I would recommend to teach this book to kids in school. I mean, it's kind of dark and maybe a bit sad at times, but this would be a pretty good book just in itself to teach children in, uh, in the UK. Uh, there's quite what, a lot of violence. There's there is violence. It's R-rated. Violence as well. It's R-rated, but you know what? Yeah. That's, that's empire, I guess. So you can't really sugarcoat it. Yeah, and lots of people have said that. Actually, some politicians have said they should teach it. So it's been amazing. You know what? I'm going to be, uh, for me, the next stage is to join a campaign or start a campaign to get the teaching changed. That is so cool. Any other future projects that you're going to kind of bounce off of this or you're going to do something different? Um, I'm doing a documentary, actually a two-part documentary on this for British TV. No way. Uh, yeah. The thing is, when you do stuff for TV and radio, things go crazy. So yeah, I'm excited, scared. Controversy on that. Yeah, because like the man, on, the man on the street doesn't read books. Generally, a person who reads a book is quite intelligent. I'm already getting death threats and terrible racism. And when it's on TV, it just goes up a hundred times, you know? Yeah. But I think it's an, import, it's an important thing to do. But my life is basically hell <laughs> for the next two years um do you want to add anything and anything else in do you want to plug in something uh no no i mean i guess I, the book is published in india and australia new zealand and britain but it's not published in north america so 
I would, if you want to read it and you're in North America, there's a bookshop called Blackwells in the UK. They do very cheap international delivery. So find Empire Land there and they'll send it to you sometimes for free. Well, <laughs> for the cost of the book. <laughs> very cool. Um, thank you so much. No, thank you for what you do, man. I mean, I was, I remember, uh, you know, while, while I was researching this, I discovered your Instagram account and it was so inspiring to know there's a community of people out there like me, you know, who want to learn about it. And mm-hmm. I think you should not underestimate the power of what you're doing because you're inspiring a huge, huge new generation of people to find out about the history. And it's, it's incredible. Yeah, but um, to be fair, to be honest, I'm, I'm just using people. You guys do all the hard work. I just come in and just take your information and kind of just package it for Instagram. But if anything, I should be thanking you, you know, who go out there and like put your, your life dedicated into that. So I'm just like probably just a pawn in, 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 in all this. You, you, you wrote the book, you know, you did the hard work. You looked at the archives. So well, I think you should, you should use your real name on the account so you can get some of these death threats. Come on, take yeah. some of the pain. <laughs> no, you know what? I can take the death threats from white people, but when I when I get the death threats from my own people, it's kind of oh yeah, that's kind of just weird. That's kind of scary. So I kind yeah, of that happens. The stuff I get is insane. Yeah, I mean that's a bit of a depressing thing about about the sea community. I find is that the first thing we do is if we fight each other. Yeah, I mean any you know? any brown community. Yeah, we all fight each other, which is probably connected to empire with their divide and conquer mentality. Yeah, so absolutely. But I do think there's something positive happening with the farmers' protests and, you know, people are united. The diaspora is uniting in a way I've never seen in my lifetime. You know, it's incredible. It's actually changing policy. You can see the Indian government kind of wriggling under the pressure. So it feels like a very exciting thing as well as being very stressful. And for me, it's, I mean, this is probably a controversial thing to say. It's not so much about what's happening with the farmers. It's about highlighting what's happening with the, the government and what it's doing, the anti-democratic nature of Modi's government and yeah. the fact that he was happy with a riot, you know, in the early part of his political career, you know? He's, he's got blood, blood on his hands, that guy. Yeah, I found it very weird going to India about a year ago and hadn't been for a while and seeing the cult of personality, the posters for him everywhere around the Punjab. And it was like a Trump thing, you know? It's all about the man. It's a martyr version of Trump. In some ways, what he's doing is worse, I think. But yeah. he's got like Bollywood under his uh, under his hands too, which is very weird. Just just crazy to think about. Yeah, and that's the that's the terrible thing about what's happening to the farmers in that the system is so corrupt that any reform is gonna it's it's just not gonna improve things because there's corruption at, in every level of Indian society. But it's so cool to see a diaspora connecting to the homeland. Like there's the bridge now, which is amazing to see this internet, digital spaces, Instagram, it's all connecting everyone together. So it's really beautiful to see this kind of unity. And now we have Rihanna too. So that's, that's. Yeah. Yeah. I saw someone um, retweeting this morning, uh, this uh, conspiracy theory that George Soros was anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that George Soros was collaborating with the Sikhs and Rihanna (laughs) to tried to defeat Modi. And this for me confirms, my, I've always said this, is that wherever there's anti-Semitism, there's going to be racism and that the yeah. Jews are the first. So this is why anti-racists need to fight anti-Semitism because once they come for the Jews, they're going to come for the next group. It's yeah. going to be Muslims, it's going to be Sikhs. And that's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's happening, 100%. Awesome. All right. 
Yeah. Well, I think we've got about three or four death threats now, guaranteed. <laughs> well, thanks for your work. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. Take care.